This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to Global Tennessee, coming to you from Nashville. Thanks for listening. Today in our roundtable, we'll be talking with Logan Monday from the World Affairs Council staff and special guest David Plazas. He's opinion engagement editor at the Tennessee, the leading Nashville daily and uh, the top news source in uh, Middle Tennessee. Our topic today is the nexus between global affairs awareness and the 2018 elections. Later, we're going to talk with Jim Shepard from the World Affairs Council about Qatar. Uh, Jim, who's our chairman, completed a visit to this important Persian Gulf country with a leadership delegation from the Network of World Affairs Councils. You won't want to miss uh, this insightful debrief. Now for our roundtable. Logan, David, welcome. Thanks, Pat. It's uh, great to be here, and I've enjoyed participating in Tennessee World Affairs Council events. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Pat. It's great to be here as well. Well, we're closing in on uh, the midterm elections, and here in Tennessee, we have an opportunity to vote in a very consequential contest to choose a new U.S. Senator to replace retiring Bob Corker. Senator Corker is chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and that fact, obviously, brought more attention to international affairs to his office beyond his other services to Tennesseans. The race we're talking about is former Governor Phil Bredesen, a Democratic Party candidate, and Congressman Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee's 7th Congressional District. For today's conversation, we'll stipulate that everyone in the room has an outside interest in global affairs beyond the average citizen. Logan and I work at the World Affairs Council, which has a mission to increase interest and understanding about global affairs. And David, you have a broad portfolio of interest to serve at the Tennessean, and you deserve great credit for all the community issues that you have been bringing to the public consciousness. You've also been involved in presenting global affairs issues to the community through your editorship on the Tennessean's opinion page. And some of our listeners may not know that you have also been very connected to our World Affairs Council visiting speaker program meeting with the ambassadors, officials, and other professionals we bring to Nashville and serving as moderator for some of our speaker town hall meetings. So with that stipulation in mind that we're all global geeks, I'd like to offer this proposition for our pod discussion today. Citizens must be informed about what's going on in the world to be effective participants in America's democracy, and the current discourse among candidates, especially for the U.S. Senate, fails to disclose their positions and future behaviors in carrying out their international affairs-related duties if they are elected. David, is that a sound statement of where we are? I think it's a very sound statement, and I think what's affecting our politics right now is the rhetoric surrounding America First, which is uh, President Trump's, uh, essentially his his, uh, agenda, his vision for what global affairs should be. But we in Tennessee have to be very cognizant of the fact that uh, the world matters to us. It matters to our commerce, it matters to our relationships. If we look at all the large companies that are here that are investing heavily, like Nissan uh, from Japan or Volkswagen from Germany and so many auto parts uh, producers and manufacturers in Canada and Mexico, these relationships, especially trade relationships, matter to us. Logan, uh, you're a a native Tennessean, uh, so among us you're probably more familiar with the longer term direction that uh, politics in, in Tennessee has uh, taken in regard to candidates talking about global issues. What's, what's your take on the, on the situation? 
Yeah, I have to say, I go along with what David was talking about. Uh, the importance of trade and international affairs uh, with the Tennessee is really important. We've got over a thousand companies in Tennessee that are based internationally. We have over 147,000 uh, Tennesseans that are employed by those companies. Those companies produce $33.2 billion in capital. That's a huge amount that no one talks about or seems uh, to really appreciate. So it seems as if there's a great deal of uh, economic value in knowing what is going on in international affairs, but there doesn't seem to be an emotional connection with that. So is, is it a question of uh, uh, people don't know enough about the importance of international affairs and, and global trade investment to the economic prosperity in the state? Because obviously there's a strong connection between Tennessee and the world when it comes to uh, the prosperity and security of, of the United States, and, including Tennessee. Uh, or is, is it just that uh, people aren't telling a good story among them, our elected officials? I, I think it has to be a bit of a ladder there. Um, there's a lot that's going on that we're all benefiting from in international trade uh, each and every day. And it just seems that the narrative isn't getting out there, that the benefits of it really outweigh any sort of uh, negative approach on international affairs. The other thing we have to remember, our civic leaders, I think, are very much aware, but uh, Tennessee also has some some great contrast between wealth and poverty. We are overall a very poor state. There are a lot of issues related to health care uh, concerns and access to uh, adequate education, adequate access to uh, economic opportunities in many parts of the state. So for them, it's more insular because that is the world that they're seeing. And so in uh, the bigger cities uh, like Nashville, which have relationships with cities across the, the globe, uh, it's much more cognizant, it's much more present. When you think about uh, a uh, cherry blossom tree, I mean, they're here because of the relationship with Japan, uh, and the climate is very similar to, to some areas of Japan, so uh, and that was very intentional. Well, we're going to talk uh, in, in a second about the, uh, the ability and, and the penchant for candidates for political office to talk about international affairs, and, or, and again, is it the, the chicken or the egg thing, uh, in terms of, of awareness of what's going on in the world. But, uh, but let's look a little, a little further into the question of uh, how interested are people in general about global affairs. And, and you know, we, we talk at the World Affairs Council to people every day about the results of some surveys that were done that show the level of knowledge among Americans, uh, principle uh, among those is a survey done by the National Geographic Society and the Council on Foreign Relations two years ago, which showed that in a group of 18 to 24 year olds, just 29% were able to pass a basic question, uh, question and answer uh, on uh, international affairs, basic questions on global affairs. Uh, and and that's, that's probably indicative not just across the United States, but I suspect Tennessee would uh, have a similar score based on, the, on talking to people and, and telling them about what we do at the World Affairs Council. What's, what's your in, impression, David, about uh, the general knowledge uh, among Americans and, and what, uh, what the, the significance of that is compared to America's role in the world as, uh, as a superpower? I think overall it's, it's very poor, and it's not just in terms of global knowledge, but it's also in terms of, of U.S. history and knowledge. Um, a lot of the work that I've done over the last, beyond a decade, both in Tennessee and when I was in Florida, had to do with citizenship issues. And often you'll find someone who's applying for citizenship has a greater knowledge of American history than someone who was born and raised here because they have to study those things. So I think it's a lack of civics education. We don't have that overwhelmingly. While there is a social studies curriculum in Tennessee, 
uh, it's, uh, it's basic when it comes to needing to know more uh, impactful things about global history, and more importantly, how it connects to us. Um, one of the things that, that I've been learning as I've been doing more reading is, is the impact of Cordell Hull, the former Secretary of State who was, who was from Tennessee, on really the state of the world today. And while some may call him a globalist, he was also a peacemaker and uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize and is someone that we should be very proud of. His name is on the uh, legislative building in downtown Nashville. Uh, and it, it's, it shows a testament that, that there are Tennesseans who have made a great impact in terms of how our world is. And we've had 70 years of, of relative peace uh, following World War II uh, because of efforts like those Tennesseans at Cordell Hill. And, and Logan, you, you can probably reflect on, on your education. You were born and raised in Tennessee, you went to the University of Tennessee. Uh, how, would, how would you characterize the general awareness uh, as, as you were growing up? Is, is uh, international affairs something that um, was just not, not considered or was not uh, part of uh, the curriculum or interest among uh, people uh, as, as you were coming up? I think the main focus that a lot of people had, uh, especially in East Tennessee, was that their uh, knowledge of international affairs came through via uh, family members or friends members' service in the military. Uh, and that service was normally done um, through uh, the Army, the Marines, uh, a couple were in the Navy. Uh, and so when those people came back, they had a, a scope of one perspective of what you can do uh, representing the U.S. internationally. And that perspective was brought back in. Uh, continued. Um, there weren't a lot of people who were perhaps working in USAID, um, humanitarian efforts, uh, the Foreign Service. So when you have a consistent number of people who really just see the, the world through one lens and, and operate in one, in one way, it's going to affect how they talk about where they've been, uh, who they've spoken with, who, where they, who, what they've seen. And I think that that kind of continues a bit in uh, some of the teaching as well as it being a place uh, over there. And that it's, it's hard to have that emotional connection uh, with, with things and people um, when the only way that you've ever you know, heard about Paris is uh, the small town in Tennessee, called Paris, Tennessee. Um, some people are fortunate enough to go to Paris for their honeymoon. And uh, I think that's kind of a, a, a big disconnect. It's, it's, well, don't, don't forget about the, the, uh, the discount mall over in Lebanon. Yeah, Lebanon. Okay, well, we're, uh, we're talking today with uh, David Plazas from Tennessee and Logan Monday from the World Affairs Council staff, and you're listening to the Global Tennessee Podcast, a project of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, let's, uh, let's shift uh, gears here a little bit, and there's a couple of directions for us to go. First, uh, the specifics about the candidates at hand, Governor Bredesen and uh, Congressman Blackburn. Uh, how, how well have they articulated their global issues positions and U.S. foreign policy beliefs and second, uh, what's the climate in our community regarding interest in, in world developments? We'll explore that a little more. Uh, one thing that uh, citizens should should consider is that uh, these candidates are running for an office that has a six-year term. They'll take office in January 2019. So they're going to be our, our senators uh, at least until the year 2025. And given the, the past impact of incumbent uh, incumbency, they're likely to be uh, re-elected at that point and, and serve until uh, into the 2030s, if you can imagine what the world's going to look like at that point. So we're, we're choosing a candidate uh, for a, an important office that constitutionally, if you look at uh, Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, they, they have specific duties uh, to perform relative to 
approval of ambassadors and treaties and uh, declaring war and getting the United States uh, involved or uninvolved or integrated in an increasingly complex world. So I think it's important for us to understand what their, their positions are. Uh, with, uh, with regard to uh, uh, Mr. Bredesen and Ms. Blackburn uh, for this office, um, uh, this office, the World Affairs Council, which is a, a unique nonpartisan educational organization in the state that focuses exclusively on bringing global affairs information and resources to our citizens, tried for over two months to engage their campaigns for a podcast interview that would be transcribed and shared with Tennessee and for their use. And uh, unfortunately, all, all we heard was uh, crickets. Um, no, no interest uh, expressed uh, by the, the campaigns uh, to talk with us uh, about international affairs. And I would uh, commend to our listeners a review of the online materials published by both of the candidates, and you'll wade through a lot of fundraising buttons to click on, but if you're looking to find out their positions on global issues, you'll be deeply disappointed. Uh, I would personally assign the, both candidates a grade of F in sharing their international views with the voters they are courting. Uh, David, you, uh, you moderated a debate between the candidates, and, and you have a lot of insight to their positions and, and uh, what their... Uh, what their campaigns are seeking to share with the public. Can you, can you give your take on uh, how well the, the candidates uh, have prepared the citizens to select someone who's going to have international relations duties in their senatorial role? Well, related to international relations, I agree with you. It's been uh, very wanting. Uh, and uh, the main issue that's been discussed when it comes to foreign affairs is trade and tariff policy from the White House. Both candidates, interestingly, despite their differences, agree that the tariffs are not a good thing for the state of Tennessee. Uh, Phil Bredesen, Governor Bredesen, has been uh, more adamant about it and started that uh, months before. It certainly has an effect on our soybean farmers. It has effects on our auto businesses and on our jobs. Uh, as Logan had mentioned, all the companies and, and employees that are here that are, that are employed by foreign employers. Uh, and so that's where they, they kept it. But they usually focused on how does this relate to Tennessee? Uh, if it's an issue like the opioid epidemic or if it's an issue uh, like uh, uh, jobs uh, and the economy, but when it comes to global affairs, they're not talking about it. And uh, Logan, as, as a, a local voter here, and I don't want to know your vote, we're, we're a nonpartisan organization here, but uh, obviously as a, a private citizen, you'll, uh, you'll have to pick a candidate. And I, I saw you wearing your I Voted uh, sticker yesterday, so I guess you come to a conclusion, but how do you feel uh, armed with information about uh, the candidates from their campaigns and, and what uh, you've been able to glean on, on their positions for, on global issues that, that uh, are important to the country? Yeah, I have to really kind of uh, mirror your sentiments on the, the F rating. Uh, I think it can very simply be, if, if you go away from trade, uh, the people that we're electing to go into the Senate represent us, Tennesseans, uh, they're the ones that are going to be voting to approve a presidential declaration of war. And uh, I've seen uh, many uh, fellow neighbors and uh, students I went to high school with who bravely served um, after someone voted uh, to go to war in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they came back in uh, wooden coffins with a flag draped over them. So this is something that uh, should not be taken lightly, and to not see any information whatsoever by either candidate on what their opinions on just on a couple of key issues abroad that would be in line with having them make a, a vote um, that would dictate whether the military would they, they would act or not. 
And it's, it's really important, and it's disappointing to see that. Well, we're uh, we're running through uh, our podcast time here. We, we have a few more things to discuss. I just want to remind everyone that uh, this is the Global Tennessee Podcast brought to you by the World Affairs Council. Uh, I'm Patrick Ryan, and we're talking with Logan Monday from our staff and David Plazas uh, from the, uh, the Tennessee. And be sure to stick around after halftime here when we talk with Jim Shepard about his fact-finding visit to the Persian Gulf. Uh, let's, uh, in our closing minutes here, widen the scope on the question of uh, citizens' interest in international affairs. As, uh, as you guys know, and, and people who are keeping up with the news, uh, at a rally in uh, Houston this past week, uh, President Trump addressed uh, the question of nationalism and globalism. He uh, identifies himself with being a nationalist. And there was a lot of conversation and commentary uh, as a result of, of that position he took. But he also said something that uh, got my attention, and it, it was uh, about globalism. And he said, quote, you know what a globalist is? Uh, he said, uh, a globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. That was kind of, it, it struck me as perhaps being the opening shot of a campaign of making people who are interested in the world and how well the world does, uh, especially in a world that is as integrated as the current world is in terms of fighting climate change and international terrorism and trade and investment and uh, dealing with migrant issues. Uh, if we're not interested in international affairs, uh, the pluses and the minuses, sure enough, the minuses will be interested in us. Uh, so I'd, I'd just like to get your thoughts uh, uh, on that. Uh, Logan, we'll, I'll ask you first, and then we'll turn to David to, uh, to give your thoughts on being a, a, I'm assuming, working at the World Affairs Council, you're somewhat of a globalist. You have an interest in international affairs as, as a return Peace Corps volunteer who served in Macedonia, and thank you for that service. Uh, what, what's your take on uh, the demonization of being a globalist? Well, I think the, the first thing I take from uh, having heard that was uh, you, know, you can live abroad and serve abroad uh, in, the, in representing the United States, and that doesn't take anything away from the values that you have as an American, and uh, especially as a Tennessean. And so it's disappointing to hear that living in a global world uh, detracts from your own uh, personal values and the way that you carry yourself uh, in that global world. Um, you nothing wrong with being an American in a global world, um, and I think that that's something that shouldn't be influenced by someone who's saying that you know, if you're a globalist and you're not an American, it's just uh, counteractive to the people that I've served uh, in the Peace Corps and the people that I worked with uh, when I was teaching English uh, in Macedonia. Uh, many people there knew me not as the uh, Macedonian teacher, but as the American that was living there. And I was quite comfortable with that and happy to represent our country in that way. David, I assume you have a passport and you've been abroad. Uh, does, does that put you in the bin? Yes, I, I studied abroad for a year. I've worked abroad. Uh, and I think it's something that really opens your mind and creates greater empathy with other people around the world. It doesn't mean I would agree wholeheartedly with Logan. It doesn't mean you're less of an American. In fact, you get to understand why we are where we are. You get to understand the arc of history. Um, I studied abroad in Spain, and people would ask me questions about, uh, you know, 
why did you uh, why did you attack Spain in the uh, Spanish American War? Uh, you know things like that. They had a long, long memory of their history of of, of American American foreign policy and the, their effect on on, on them and, and other uh, considerations. I think uh, the courts have ruled that uh, President Trump uh, is often guilty of rhetorical hyperbole, uh, which is allowed under our uh, First Amendment, uh, and uh, unfortunately can also be very divisive and dangerous. Uh, and I think any kind of demagogic uh, speech, whether it's from a uh, president in the United States or Ecuador or Russia or elsewhere uh, has an effect of really destabilizing people's idea of what uh, normalcy is. And I think that what we've seen for the last several decades is that it's okay to love America and at the same time understand the world around you. Uh, now, my other unique perspective is I'm a son of immigrants, so I have a connection to a world beyond the United States. And I think that has also uh, expanded my opportunity to see through other people's eyes how uh, we're seeing and how we see the, the rest of the world. Well, we're, uh, we're about out of time here, but I think we've had a, a good conversation and I hope it continues uh, in, in other forums. We'll, we'll probably return to this topic in our podcast from time to time. Any, any last thoughts uh, before we close? Logan? Yeah, well, I just want to first say uh, thank you for David for coming. It's wonderful to have you here and hear uh, your perspective on this. And, you know, second, I wouldn't be a uh, employee of World Affairs Council if I didn't uh, get our listeners out there to, to join. It's at timwack.org backslash join. And for those of you that want to have a further inquiry or perhaps uh, introduce some of your opinions, we welcome those uh, comments and thoughts. And you can email me at uh, logan.monday at tnwac.org. And we look forward to hearing from you. Great. David? And I'm really appreciative of the work that you do. I've, I've been really so impressed with the quality and caliber of guests that you've had to come to the different town hall meetings, the questions from both students and members of the public, uh, and how important the work you do is. So, so I commend you, you both, Pat and Logan. Uh, it, it's important for us to be well-rounded citizens to understand this world better. People can reach me at dplazas at tennessean.com and find me on Twitter at David Plazas. Uh, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for the kind words. And, and uh, I'll tip my hat back at you. I think uh, anyone following the, the work that uh, you're doing at the Tennessean appreciates not just uh, the spotlight that you shine on uh, our, our speakers and, and other things that we're doing at the World Affairs Council, but clearly the work in the community uh, across the board, not, uh, not international things, but uh, working hard to make Nashville a better place. So thank you for all, all your hard work. Thank you. And thanks for coming out today. Well, that's a, that's a wrap for the roundtable. It's time for a short break, and we'll be back with today's conversation. But today we'll be talking about the Persian Gulf and the country of Qatar with Jim Shepard, Chairman of the World Affairs Council and former Chairman of the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber. We'll have more in a minute. You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email, info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website, tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at Tennessee WAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at TNWAC. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit tnwac.org for more information. Global Tennessee is provided by the World Affairs Council, a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational organization. The council works to bring global affairs awareness programs to the community. 
check our website for the calendar of future events. There's always something interesting coming up. Your support is key to making global literacy programs available in the community and for our schools. Visit tnwac.org to become a member and to make a gift. Thank you. Welcome back to Global Tennessee. I'm Patrick Ryan, and you are in the conversation segment of our uh, Episode 2 podcast. Uh, welcome, and uh, we hope you uh, will enjoy this segment. We're going to be talking with uh, Tennessee World Affairs Council Chairman Jim Shepard, who is just back from a trip to Qatar in the Persian Gulf. He was there with the World Affairs Councils of America delegation, uh, a leadership fact-finding trip that was in uh, the Gulf state for about a week to uh, visit people, places, and things that most people don't get to, uh, officials in government, uh, ministries, facilities, U.S. Uh, military uh, stationed in Qatar, and uh, other cultural and social activities that uh, will give the leaders from the World Affairs Councils that attended an insight into uh, what's happening in Qatar. Welcome, Jim, uh, to the conversation uh, at uh, Global Tennessee. Well, thank you, Pat. I'm glad to be back. And today we're going to uh, talk a, a little bit about uh, your your trip to Qatar and provide some background and your impressions of what uh, U.S. relations, uh, the economy, uh, our business interests, uh, what's happening in, in Qatar as far as education, uh, cultural activities. Uh, everybody might be familiar with the fact that Qatar is going to be holding the World Cup in 2020. We'll talk a little bit about that. I understand you uh, saw some of the uh, facilities that were uh, being constructed in, in the country. That's correct. It's 2022, so don't get your plane tickets too early. Uh, 2022. And uh, it's it's an important country that um, uh, impacts American foreign policy and, and interest in the region. And uh, just by uh, virtue of background, to, to give people who are not familiar with the geography of the Persian Gulf, Qatar is one of the uh, Arab states on the western side of the Persian Gulf, across the Persian Gulf from Iran. So if you're looking at a, a map of the Persian Gulf, it's uh, it, it sort of replicates the thumb sticking out of the Arabian Peninsula. It's about the size of uh, Connecticut and is uh, one of the states of the Gulf Cooperation Council. It became independent in the early 1970s from Britain when they gave up their, uh, their states, uh, including Bahrain, uh, what was called the Trucial States, which has now become the United Arab Emirates, and uh, their holdings in the Persian Gulf. So they've been uh, their own country uh, since about 1972. In the early 80s, they joined the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is a grouping of Arab Gulf states that includes, from the top of the, uh, the Gulf, Kuwait, and of course Saudi Arabia, which dominates the Arabian Peninsula landmass, uh, Bahrain, which is an island off the coast, the east coast of Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, which is the uh, the thumb sticking out of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, which uh, comprises uh, seven sheikdoms that join together to form one country, uh, as well as Oman at the uh, southern end of the Gulf, which faces directly across the strategic Strait of Hormuz from, uh, from Iran. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, refer to uh, some of the the facts and figures of Qatar as we go through our conversation. But uh, Jim, I just wanted to uh, uh, let you talk uh, first about the World Affairs Council uh, delegation trip that you were on, what that was all about, the, the folks that you traveled to Qatar with, and uh, and your general uh, impression and overview of what, what the trip was about. 
Well, we were invited to attend uh, by the state of Qatar. It was uh, part of a, an effort by the state to create a, a higher level of awareness among uh, Americans and, and other nationalities of what's happening in Qatar today. I think many of us have uh, preconceived conceptions that may not be accurate. I know certainly in my case, I walked away with a very different perspective than I had at the beginning of the trip. There were a total of 14 uh, people on the trip. We represented 13 different councils uh, scattered across the United States. And the, the, there was a very good cross-section, both geographically and in terms of the backgrounds of the individuals, which helped us because we had the opportunity to interact with many different people in Qatar, from the, the government officials to business leaders to sports uh, authorities and education. So we had a pretty good match with the uh, technical backgrounds of our delegation along with the people we talked to on our trip. And uh, the, the, the types of uh, places you went to obviously are not uh, what normal uh, visitors uh, would get when they go to, to Qatar. You, you know, I understand that uh, you got a tour of the al Air Base where the U.S. military has its headquarters talked with uh, educators at uh, some of the institutions of higher learning. Uh, I, I understand there are about six major U.S. universities that have uh, facilities there in their education city, uh, as well as uh, Qataris uh, about uh, culture and uh, art and architecture. One, one thing that uh, people, when they first look at a picture of Qatar, they see an, an impressive uh, skyline of, of buildings and, and architecture. and. Uh, and you and I uh, earlier were talking about uh, some of the the architecture there and the the, uh, the freestyle uh, building construction. And, and I'll just uh, reminisce a little. In my military days, I was in Qatar uh, a couple of times. The most recent uh, visit was in 1997, and the only scene on the skyline was about a eight-story Sheraton Pyramid Hotel. And other than that, it was all low-lying buildings. And now the the landscape is very dramatic. Yeah, I think in the, uh, the 30 years since you were there, uh, if you were looking for the Sheraton today, you'd be hard-pressed to find it among all the other buildings that have been constructed. It is a very modern city. The, the capital of Qatar is Doha, and the majority of the residents of the country do live in the Doha area. Uh, there New construction is in place as well as ongoing. I was extremely impressed with what I saw there. I likened it to uh, some of my colleagues that the skyline looked like an architect's dream and an engineer's nightmare. Uh, each building was very, very unique. It was visually uh, stunning. Uh, one could spend days just looking at the architecture alone. Uh, and all of this was constructed in a relatively short period of time. Let's, uh, let's jump in and talk to some of the experiences you had there, and, and we'll refer to the government-to-government relationship. Uh, Qatar and the United States have uh, very close relations, uh, obviously with a U.S. military base there. Uh, I think you were saying that, that uh, it's the largest base in the Middle East, is that right? The largest air base in the Middle East is, is uh, in this country of Qatar. So that, that reflects uh, excellent relationships uh, between uh, Washington and Doha across the board, political, military, economic, and, and otherwise. And, and Qatar 
uh, certainly is interested in uh, the business side, but probably more in the, the national security front as as a state that uh, is in kind of a tough neighborhood. And uh, can you tell us what, what you learned in, in your conversations with U.S. officials and, and others there about uh, the relationship? Sure. Um, I think the U.S. has, has clearly uh, embraced the relationship between our two countries. A number of, of treaties have been signed over the last couple of years reinforcing that relationship. Uh, the, the air base is, alone is a very, very significant commitment on the part of Qatar, who actually constructed the base and works with the U.S. and jointly operates the base on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, other areas of cooperation include uh, the fight against ISIS and counterterrorism. In fact, we had the opportunity to meet with the deputy of the counterterrorism and conflict resolution arm of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And this is the individual who participates in a uh, multi-country effort to identify sources of financing for, for terrorism, encounter those uh, sources with the ultimate goal, of course, to eliminate that financing capability. And the U.S., along with the GCC countries and, and several other Western European countries, have come together to share information, all in an effort to counter the efforts of the terrorists to fund their ongoing operations. Now, uh, you told me that the popular phrase in use is uh, the crisis to describe uh, a situation in which Qatar and its uh, brother states in the Gulf Cooperation Council are at odds. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, how, how that uh, impacted your visit and, and what, uh, what you learned about the crisis? Yes, in uh, early or in the early summer of last year, early summer 2017, uh, four of the countries in the region, uh, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, uh, jointly and unilaterally amongst the four of them, imposed an embargo on all goods, services, and activities between Qatar and themselves. And this was a complete and total embargo. Uh, no air traffic, no uh, road traffic, no people moving back and forth. And this was totally unexpected on the part of Qatar. It, and at that time when it was imposed, Qatar was importing 80 to 90% of its food through Saudi Arabia. So overnight, all food shipments stopped. All medical, medical shipments stopped. To say that it was a shock uh, to the citizenship of Qatar is an understatement. And we were very impressed with the response that the, the Qatarians were able to pull together and implement and very quickly establish alternate supply routes for food and medicines and kept the, the population fed and in fact, kept the economy alive to the point that uh, they still had economic growth last year of 1.5%, in spite of the fact that they were suddenly cut off from their main trading partners uh, as a result of the blockade that was put in place. And uh, you traveled around to a number of different, uh, not just government facilities, but, but other parts of, of the country. What... Uh, what did you get a sense of from, from the general population as, as to what 
what the cause of uh, of the um, the crisis, the embargo was, and and what the uh, what's being called upon Doha to do uh, in response uh, to what those co- other countries are are uh, are claiming. The uh, stated reasons for the embargo, the reasons stated by Saudi Arabia and the other countries, uh, include. Uh, Qatar is alleged to be supporting terrorism and is alleged to be supporting the Muslim Brotherhood and is alleged to uh, be very, very uh, supportive of Iraq, which is a significant, excuse me, Iran, which is a significant uh, opponent of Saudi Arabia and others in the area. All of that has resulted in the four countries developing a list of 12 demands uh, of Qatar, all of which are significant uh, impositions on their sovereignty and their existence and, and right to operate as an independent country. Now, my understanding is that the, the relationship between Doha and Iran is shaped in large extent to the fact that the, uh, the Qatar natural gas reserves are mostly offshore. Is that right? That's correct. There's a a very, very large, in fact, it's the third largest natural gas reserve in the world, is in the Persian Gulf, and it borders both Qatar and uh, the waters of Iran. It's about 65% in the territory of Qatar and 35% in the territory of Iran. So there's, uh, Doha would have a natural reason to have to maintain good relations with Iran since they both jointly uh, explore and exploit uh, the uh, the seabed for, for the natural gas resources. Uh, I've, I've heard that in addition to the allegations about the relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, there's a displeasure among some of the other Gulf states with Doha hosting Al Jazeera. And, and you visited Al Jazeera. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what Al Jazeera means to to Doha, the relationship between the government and and that satellite cable news network, and uh, how it's somehow irritated the others. Sure, yeah, Al Jazeera uh, is located in Doha, and uh, we had the opportunity to meet with the English language uh, editor of Al Jazeera, and actually went on the, the set and had an opportunity to witness some of the the broadcasts that day. But it's a, uh, an independent news organization. Their uh, goal is to present a balanced view of what's happening uh, wherever they're reporting, but obviously a focus on the Middle East. Uh, it should be noted that the funding of Al Jazeera comes in large part from the state of Qatar. But the, the people we talked to were very emphatic that they have never received any editorial pressure or influence from anybody in the government that would impact what they were reporting upon. But some of their reporting has focused attention on the, uh, the governments of other Arab states uh, to their irritation. Absolutely. The, the, uh, it's not a, a Doha focus or a Qatar focused organization. It's a global news gathering operation with uh, reporting from anywhere in the world, but obviously a significant influence on the Middle East and, and the countries in the Middle East. Just a reminder, uh, you're listening to Global Tennessee. It's a production of the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville, Tennessee. And we're talking today with Jim Shepard, chairman of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, on his uh, visit uh, this month to 
Cutter in the Persian Gulf and his experiences with a delegation from the World Affairs Councils uh, of America. And uh, Jim, we, we referred to uh, Al-Odid, which is a, a large uh, Qatari military uh, airfield and uh, the U.S. presence there. I understand you got a, a tour of the base and uh, uh, talked to some of the military people there and saw some of the, the aircraft. Yeah, we actually had an opportunity to go out on the flight line and had an up-close-and-personal tour of a B-1 bomber, which for me was a first-time event and a very, very impressive piece of equipment. Uh, out of that air base, the, the U.S. operates sorties in, in the region. It not only houses a wing of B-1 bombers, but also a number of uh, tankers that are uh, used to supply the B-1 and other aircraft. I think the U.S. has approximately 10,000 personnel on that base today, so it's a, a very large installation with capability to, uh, to serve that area as necessary. Uh, one of the, uh, the factors that uh, they shared with us was they typically will take off on a sortie in the morning, and uh, the, when they get close to the, the region of action, Afghanistan right now is obviously one of the areas that has lots of action, uh, they, they, they're available. So as necessary and called in by ground forces, they then can respond if necessary, and if not necessary, they return to base. So it's a, uh, it's a very flexible operation, and, and the crews have to be prepared for a wide variety of activities, wherever may be necessary at that point in time. So these American men and women in the Air Force and other services are flying combat missions every day to places like Afghanistan from Doha? Seven days a week, maybe. and, and that's, that's just the regular sorties. And, and if it, it's necessary to, for some special missions, they certainly will do that at a, a moment's notice. And they, they've also been involved in the Iraq when we were uh, prosecuting the, the combat against uh, ISIS. And given the, the size and the capabilities that are on that base, we have the ability to, to meet the needs in the region, uh, wherever that may be, uh, with some pretty significant firepower. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, Doha as a financial hub. You had some exposure to the business uh, people there and, and talked about the economy and what they were doing in terms of uh, building an economy that would not just be dependent on natural gas into the future, but they were looking at uh, a knowledge economy and, and being a financial hub. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that was, to me, it was a, a very impressive effort and commitment that the government has made to diversify the economy beyond natural gas and, and petroleum-related products. Uh, they have made significant investment in people. They've educated a very large number of, of their own citizens that will then be able to participate in activities uh, in the financial sector uh, to a large extent. That's one of the areas of focus. They've also put in uh, uh, infrastructure in the form of buildings and, and internet capabilities to meet whatever the needs may be. But probably most impressively, they've created what they call the, the Cutter Financial Center. And this is, in essence, a, a virtual uh, enterprise zone that as companies join the, the organization, they then are able to participate and do business in, in the cocoon of the financial center, which includes uh, a very clearly defined set of laws that are all based on English common law. 
It also includes the enforcement uh, and arbitration activities all associated with those laws. Uh, they've put in place a tax structure that's very competitive on the global stage, uh, including a 10% corporate income tax along with a no withholding tax on dividends that are, are repatriated out of Qatar. So they're creating an environment that's very conducive to financial firms and consulting firms that want to, to do business in the Middle East or anywhere in the world for that matter by creating a, a very stable uh, environment from a legal perspective along with all of the physical infrastructure that may be necessary. Now, Qatar, uh, in about 2007 or 8, uh, in that uh, period, gained notoriety as the, the wealthiest per capita uh, country in the world. And there are only about 2.3 million people in, in the country. And of that, I think there's about 10% who are Qataris and the rest are uh, uh, expatriates who are involved in the, the labor force, both I guess in terms of putting up all those spectacular buildings and carving the marble and all, all those sorts of things, but also uh, probably a professional class. Can you comment on the, the diverse population and, and uh, where, where Qataris fit into the big picture there? Sure. Well, just to, to start with, they've grown a little bit since you, you were last there. They're now at 3 million people. Oh, okay. Uh, but the 10% number is still there. So it's of a, a 3 million resident population, 300,000 are citizens. Uh, and I was very impressed with the education level of all of the people we interacted with. Many of them have been educated in uh, Western universities, the United States, Europe, etc. Uh, their, their business knowledge was very high, very astute. Uh, they, they had a really nice blend of personal warmth openness, transparency, along with a you know, pretty clearly demonstrated sharp mind. And they, they know how to run a business. They know what business is all about. So the, the, the people I found to be very, very interesting, very well educated, and very warm. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the World Cup, which is coming in, as, as you uh, point out, 2022, right around the corner. Everybody gets excited about the World Cup. Hopefully the U.S. will be in this next one, uh, but uh, you had some exposure to the facilities and the planning there. Can you tell us about that? Yes, they've uh, put together an organization uh, to, to really not only prepare for and execute the World Cup event itself, but also the legacy of the World Cup. And that was uh, really striking upon us. They're thinking of the long term here, along with many of the activities that they're undertaking. As an example, they are building seven new stadiums to handle the games. And these stadiums will handle between 40,000 and 80,000 people. Many of those stadiums are designed to be repurposed, either partially or in whole, after the game. Uh, for example, the, the top tier of some of the stadiums can be disassembled, and it will be then uh, shipped to developing countries so they then can create their own stadium with the infrastructure that's made available. Another stadium is built, being built almost Lego block style, so it can be completely disassembled afterwards. A third is being built to, uh, to be repurposed after the games for activities other than sporting events. 
So they, they've really taken a, a pragmatic view, a long-term view of not only preparing and executing the games, but what happens after the games. Uh, they're also putting in place uh, a lot of infrastructure, not just for the games, because it will be available afterwards, but this includes a metro or a light rail system to connect all the stadiums and, and connect the greater Doha area. They're adding significant number of hotel rooms, uh, as well as putting in place improvements to the airport to handle the influx of people that they anticipate. Just a reminder, you're listening to Global Tennessee, a production of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan. I'm here with Jim Shepard, who's telling us about his trip to uh, to Qatar. As for the uh, the World Cup facilities, uh, I think a lot of people are worried about the heat of the Persian Gulf in, uh, in professional world-class uh, athletics in an outdoor environment. Uh, what, what did you learn about uh, preparations to deal with that? Well, a couple things. One, they have shifted the timing. Uh, usually the games are held in the summer months in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, they're going to do the, the games in uh, November, December timeframe when it's a little bit cooler. That'll help a bit, but it'll still be relatively warm. And they are uh, putting in place a system to cool the spectators and the players about 20 degrees below what the ambient temperature is anticipated to be while the games are being played. This is a, uh, a carbon neutral solution that's based on, on solar generated power and they'll be able to provide a, a pretty comfortable environment to watch the games and, and compete in the games in spite of the fact that uh, it's in the middle of a, a very warm country. That's a, an incredible investment uh, to bring the, the, the cup to the Gulf and in terms of technology and infrastructure and just the sheer expense and magnitude of building that, uh, that kind of facility and uh, facilities from the ground up. Absolutely. They, uh, that not just for the World Cup, but uh, infrastructure commitments on the part of the Qatar government total over $200 billion. Wow. Which is a very, very significant commitment. To be sure. Well, just before we close, I'd like to remind you this is the uh, Global Tennessee uh, webcast, a podcast, and uh, we're brought to you by the Tennessee World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the National Area Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we hope that uh, you'll check out the World Affairs Council website at tnwac.org, become a member, or make a gift uh, to this nonprofit, nonpartisan educational organization that serves our community here in. Nashville, Middle Tennessee, and the broader state of Tennessee. Uh, Jim, uh, as as we close here, what what do you what are your takeaways from your week in, in Doha, Qatar, and and your trips around the, around the country? What couple of things uh, will be most memorable to you as as you reflect back on that week? Uh, a couple. Of, it goes back to the people and and thinking about the the people we interacted with and observed. First of all, the, the very high level of education of, of the people we talk to and the commitment to education on the part of the government. They, they've spent significant amounts of money building an education city and educating not only the citizens of, of Qatar, but all residents, as well as making significant funding available throughout the Middle East to educate young people 
uh, with the understanding that education is the key to the future for, for just about anybody. And, and they're certainly putting their money where their mouth is when it comes to education. I was also very impressed with the role of women in uh, the government and in the business functions that we were able to spend some time with. Uh, rough estimate, I would say 40% of the individuals we spoke with were women. The women in the society seem to have a, a, a fairly prominent role, certainly more so than I had expected to see going into the meeting. And that was a very refreshing observation, at least for me. And finally, I was very impressed with the transparency of everybody we talked to. None of our questions were unanswered. People were very open. They were very honest. We asked a couple of tough questions, but they didn't, uh, didn't duck any of those questions and gave us very open and honest answers. And I think third of all, was the, uh, the welcoming, warmth, the personality of everybody we talked to. People were, uh, were genuinely interested and appreciative of our presence, and they made us feel as very welcome guests in their home. Well, that's terrific. It sounds like a, a great week that you had there, learning about uh, the Persian Gulf, the, the country of Qatar, and uh, getting to know some other members of the World Affairs Council family. And I guess uh, we owe special thanks to the World Affairs Councils of America and the state of Qatar for facilitating uh, this trip of leaders from around the network of World Affairs Councils. Uh, we're just one of about 90 World Affairs Councils in the country, and we appreciate the efforts of the national office to bring these kinds of opportunities to, uh, to the network. So uh, that's it for the conversation segment of this edition of Global Tennessee. We thank you for listening. We hope you'll spread the word to your friends to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and wherever else you find your uh, fine podcasts. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Global Tennessee. In the meantime, if uh, there's something that comes up, we'll be sure to produce a, a special broadcast and let you know that uh, that's available for your listening pleasure. Again, this is Patrick Ryan at the Tennessee World Affairs Council with Jim Shepard, Chairman of the Council, and we appreciate your time to, uh, to listen in and to help us share a little piece of the world. Thank you. Goodbye. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy, I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org slash podcast for more information.